I'm Bub. Welcome to Bub on Purpose, the podcast. I believe that a life driven by purpose can lead to a more fulfilling life. So I ask passionate people why they do what they do. I dive deep into conversations with people of all ages who have developed their life purpose and who can inspire, offer advice, share techniques for developing purpose, and articulate their perspectives. As this podcast is in the early stages, I'm really just excited to dive in and learn myself and share that with you guys. So if you're here in this early stage, I really appreciate you for listening and I hope you take away something valuable. It's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't. You've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before. You have to try to look for something deeper than the culturally constructed. There's urgency to this passion thing, so I think you're really on to something. We're talking about whether we survive on the planet or not. I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. What would people say about me at my funeral? You really have to have a healthy disrespect for other people's opinion. You know, life is not this guarantee. We're in, there's no guarantee in life. The truck runs me down right after this interview. I fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. The voice inside of you that's asking those questions deserves to be honored. That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. In this episode of Bub on Purpose, I speak with Sebastian Erasuris. Sebastian is a Chilean-born, New York-based artist, designer, activist, and tech entrepreneur. I think that deserves repeating. Artist, designer, activist, and tech entrepreneur. His work has been featured on multiple magazine covers and portrayed in thousands of press articles. He has also received critical acclaim from the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. As I think you'll realize from our conversation, he has many unique habits, he questions everything, he drives towards his passions with an unparalleled motivation, and he has a conviction that is contagious. This conversation was recorded at his studio in Brooklyn, New York. Here is Sebastian Erasuris. I'm here with Sebastian Erasuris, or you can correct me. That's, that's pretty good. That's better than my former mother-in-law could say. <laughs> and I first became aware of him when he came and spoke to my program of industrial design at Pratt, and I was like, I need to... I want to spend more time around this guy because I like the way he thinks. And so I've, I found myself here a couple of years later after that. But just to get a little bit of context, can you give us a little bit of background as far as your childhood, where you're from? Sure. You so I'm an artist, designer, bit of an activist, now also a tech entrepreneur, as weird as that combination might sound. I'm Chilean. I was raised in London. I was very fortunate that my father did his PhD in how to educate art and that every child in 
actually studies that art program from kindergarten to 18. So I was raised in the arts. I was a guinea pig for an arts education program. And I happened to also just love the arts since a kid. Once I was 18, I didn't nevertheless feel worthy of calling myself an artist. And it didn't feel like it made sense to study art because the vast majority of the curriculum was something that I had also uh, studied already in my childhood. Therefore, I studied industrial design. And I like the idea of design because it wasn't about you as an artist. It wasn't about the artist's ego or their perspective. Uh, it wasn't a self-centered practice. It was a practice around solving problems for others. It was measurable, which was a, a bit of a, a nice relief within the context of the art world to have a discipline that wasn't uh, up to the viewer, but could actually be tangible in terms of its result, its efficiency and contributions. Um, and then it had a lot of uh, specific knowledge tied to it that could be proven to contribute. If you learned about a specific technique, uh, subject, uh, material or process, you would be incorporating new tools that would allow you to hand out bigger contributions within your field and within the problems that you were trying to tackle. Now, within design, and once I started design, I always kept missing the arts and kept wanting to add that artistic component, the philosophical component, the conceptual, the existential, to an already functional solution. And I just started merging both. At some point, I also go back to study um, just art. I did my MFA at uh, New York University. Um, and in between, I've done everything from having a TV show, a radio show, a newspaper column to teaching at university or um, being a personal advisor to the current Chilean president for his campaign or, um, I don't know, designing everything from the interior of a jet to a pair of women's shoes to a giant political public artwork to now software that can help people uh, everyone from missing children to uh, artists trying to exhibit so it's it's a weird big mix of elements in which i have purposely avoided being pigeonholed into one corner and tried to use the tools of art and design as a way to navigate through a variety of topics. And so far, I'm, I'm okay. I think I see you as someone who's one of the most passionate or motivated people that, I, that I'm aware of. How do you think you have developed that? Mm -hmm. And what, on more of a tangible sense, day-to-day, -day, what, what motivates that passion? Sure. Um, I think... Passion comes from, from awareness, from, uh, from clarity, right? The moment that you believe or understand that you're truly in love with someone, that is the moment that you can make great sacrifices for your relationship. In the same manner, the moment that you decide and have the conviction that you want to be a soccer player or a nurse, that is the moment where you can put in those extra hours to try and perfect your craft or your calling uh, and so on. Um, 
But that passion requires first to know what you want. And I think it is, um, it is a privilege and it is very rare in today's era to know what you want. And I have a lot of dear friends and, and uh, colleagues who are brilliant and who are incredibly hardworking, nevertheless lack that clarity, which in turn cripples and stops them from going full force ahead for something. Um, their energies are divided between a variety of different interests and things, and it is hard for them to make up their mind to make one bet over another. Um, I've, on one side, was incredibly fortunate due to childhood, family, circumstances to be very aware of death and the idea that you could die at any moment, hence to have the tranquility that I wanted to know I did everything I could possibly do that day. How did you, how did you come to that understanding? My, um, so, uh, my uh, grandfather and my uncle both had um, diabetes type 1. At the time, diabetes type 1 was something that was a lot less manageable than today, and you could actually die um, from an overdose of uh, sugar or not getting your insulin levels to the right point, or maybe went on a night out and you drank way too much and you overdosed, lost conscious, and you could then um, have a whole uh, cerebral um, fall and, and you could really end up in hospital and maybe even dying of this. Um, my uncle decided he did not want to live uh, a slave to a disease that required that he has to constantly look after himself and structure his whole life um, and basically commits suicide by way of, of diabetes. Um, for the whole family, it was, it was horrendous because they had seen my grandfather look after himself rigorously in a very methodical manner. And then they see his son, their brother, their child to decide, you know what, I don't want to live that life and I will just stop looking after myself. And when my body goes, my body goes, which was pretty quick. Um, I'm born right after his death, and for whatever reason, I supposedly look like him. So for the people around in the family, I become the incarnation of this person who also happened to be the artist of the family. And it just so happens that I proved since a child to be skilled at drawing and sculpture and whatever. And so I'm basically called by my dead uncle's name since I'm like four or five. Add to that that you're the oldest, the, the youngest kid, sorry, uh, the first son, right, of a young couple. And you're amongst adults all the time. And maybe you just talk to as an adult and uh, you start seeing things in a different manner. And uh, I think that provided an extreme clarity for me that was very rare that I continue to have to today. And you mentioned people not being able to... Uh, obtain this clarity mm -hmm. what what is your clarity like coming back to passion what is what is that clarity and when have you recognized when did you recognize that sure I think the, the clarity comes out of a an ability to look at your own life and your environment in a 
tangible, quantifiable, um, sort of cold, almost scientific manner, right? And so if you can constantly think of your life as in, hey, right now I'm 41 years old, my lifespan should be another 41 years according to the average of um, life expectancy within the US for a white male today, it means I just lived half my life. I've got the other half left. It's not just that, but I've got the lesser half in terms of health, in terms of body of work that I'm capable of doing, uh, etc. If you break it down, you could also say, look, from 40 to 50, you should have all the necessary contacts and have proven as to a certain degree your qualifications as a professional, this is still your creative period while still having a certain degree of energy before you start losing some connection with the pulse of reality that might end up happening around 50. Basically, that now means I've got 10 years. Within these next 10 years, if you break them down into either I get to 45, being as successful as I want to be, doing the projects I want to be, or then five that go after, right, um, are going to be dependent on how successful I was then, those are going to limit my opportunities to work on what I want to work, then you take it down to these five, right? And then so within these five, it's about the projects I'm about to do this year that will trigger the next and so on. So if you continue breaking and breaking and breaking down reality in a practical manner, at the end of the day, whichever way you cut it, you end up with the now and you end up with the realization of the importance of your accountability for your actions now. And within this life in which you could die at any moment, in which I personally don't believe in anything else afterwards, the only thing you can get in this life is the tranquility that you were as aware as you possibly could and you were as brave as you possibly could. So I break everything down to the last spot and analyzing that, I will then need to have the necessary courage to go for that which I think is what I should be doing. As long as you can do that, you're free. As long as you can do that, you don't have guilt. You will still suffer. It will actually be pretty hard on yourself and on your system, but you'll be able to remind yourself of why you're doing things. Um, and if things don't happen your way, you know that you did everything to break down what was in your way to do it. You will know that it was bad luck, that it was circumstances, that it was not your fault. You will be able to rest tranquil. That is a huge, huge thing that the vast majority of people don't even consider. So again, passion comes from clarity. And that clarity can only come from doing the effort to be honest and brave and breaking down reality to its bare minimum and being able to go at it again and again and again in the same manner as you would go to try and tackle a design problem or an engineering problem or a personal problem. There is a truth there and you can break it down to its bare minimum denominator and you'll know what you need to do. What is your why? It is your why 
the breakdown of those moments yes. and then listening. Yes. Is the, the why is the clarity of the precarity of life. Mm -hmm. Right? So I have absolute clarity since a kid that life is short. Therefore, for example, I understood as a child that the high school or school uh, period was just a school period. And I was supposed to come out of that with memories of childhood. And I understood I needed to construct worthwhile memories of childhood that I would want to look back at later on. That was the purpose of childhood. That was the purpose of school beyond a few friends, beyond obviously an education. Therefore, it was at that moment my necessary passion to generate mischievous yet hopefully respectful adventures, uh, uh, rebellious attempts at doing things that hadn't been done. Um, those were as important as learning my subject matters, being able to debate with my teachers and uh, be able to hone your skills and critical thinking was as important as also maybe doing certain pranks on them because that's what you were supposed to do as a kid. And that's what I would want to know that I did when I looked back at that period. To a point where the teachers knew me as the one guy that if they ever asked who did this, I would stand up and say it was my fault. Because I also assumed that punishment and being told off or being told to go to, on Saturdays to, I don't know, work at the library was just part of it. But again, it always comes from the clarity. Clarity gives you truth. The moment you have truth, that's your passion. How would, you, how would you compare the idea of clarity to intuition? The, right, the intuition is an approach to that clarity, right? Um, intuition is, is incredible, especially within the creative fields. I compare it to um, an inner algorithm that we've been developing almost at an evolutionary scale over time that allows us to process large quantities of data, find original patterns and combinations, and see things that we rationally cannot even process. So for example, um, when chess master players are asked during a uh, simultaneous exhibition of plays, right, where they're playing uh, 20 boards at the same time in parallel. How the hell do you get to see every board and sit down with a person who's been in front of that board while you were playing other 20 people and know what move to do? Most of the time they tell you, I just see the move in the moment. I just know what move it is. Now, the rest of the time on the clock, they spend checking if that intuition was right. That intuition is an intuition that in their case has been not evolutionary developed because our ancestors weren't all playing chess, right? Uh, it's been programmed after, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 hours of practice into a manner in which it's part of their system. So the intuitive process is a beautiful one that it is at 
times often smarter than our own traditional rational intellect that should be therefore incredibly respected. Nevertheless, our intuition is often wrong too. And there's a lot of studies that prove that we are very often wrong in, in intuition. Therefore, we need to find the combination in which we always listen to our intuition, we always give it space, but then like the chess master player, we give the enough time before we act on our intuition to check if that hunch is correlated to the breakdown of the facts and the reality. I, I watched a, a video of you at some point and you, you describe a process, one process of creative thinking for you and it really brought, uh, it was something I hadn't considered, but I think this is tied to your intuition in the sense that your sub, you use your subconscious in a creative manner. Mm -hmm. Can you describe how, how you came to figure that out and what did that look like doing it the first few times? And sure. then what is it? Sure. Um, so maybe because I was raised within the arts and it, I wasn't the kind that uh, at 18 decided he wanted to play the guitar and be in a band or that scribbled a little in his sketchbooks and therefore decided maybe I should go and, and be a painter. Um, because I was raised in this since age four, three, the requirements that were asked of the artistic practice were always very strict and very demanding and quite advanced for that age, right? So I'm, I'm being asked to um, draw with values of line and an awareness of how much of the canvas I'm keeping white and how much I'm uh, filling up and understanding that every line you placed down was as important as every line you chose not to place down, but at six or seven. Those are concepts that generally uh, an architect or an artist gets to study in university, mm -hmm. right? So there was a very serious approach to the arts, which isn't the one that most people like or have. Most people like to think of the arts as a creative free, democratic for all, uh, in which everyone can participate and everyone is equally um, capacitated to both create and to both be able to analyze or read. I think that's wrong. I think the arts are a language and as a language it needs to be learned and only when you are a skillful uh, interpreter of a highly uh, developed vocabulary and have an understanding of its cultural roots, you can therefore then become uh, a, a author that can illustrate properly new ideas and concepts, right? So because of that too, I demand that the arts are tied down to higher levels of accountability and higher levels of quantifiable measures. Mm -hmm. I believe the arts can be measured. We just don't have the tools right now. And therefore, I believe every aspect of the arts can be improved. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly trying to search for ways to hack my own system or to improve my capabilities as an artist as if I was trying to improve um, my method as a scientist.
Within that, we all know that our unconscious develops a big part of our associations in the same manner as uh, we know that we can come up with ideas or, or concepts or feelings during our dreams, or that when we go for a walk, suddenly we make certain uh, associations that we wouldn't have done if our uh, brain wasn't getting uh, oxygen by walking around, right? So then you need to think, how do I incorporate those into my daily practice? And how can I accelerate my capability to come up with associations when and however I need them? And you, you start checking things out and testing things out. And one of the things that has worked for me again and again is creating a, a high understanding of the problem first. So, so learning, studying about an issue and then purposely figuring out a way to not think. Purposely choosing not to come up with rational uh, solutions to that problem. And it is allowing your mind to go. Now, I can't take a pill right now to go to sleep and try to force my mind at sleep to continue to process this info. So one of the things that works is to figure out how to not think, right? And it's very similar to meditation. If in meditation you're blocking your thoughts out and you're trying to just be present, um, here what I try to do is block out any thought, but I add an extra component of energy. Um, and that for me is music. I need to get to a heightened sense of energy and emotion. Do you have a typical type of music that you use? Yeah, it's weird. I go from uh, Bach, uh, so uh, Johann Sebastian Bach aria. It's, uh, I tend to go for um, Glenn Gold, Goldberg Variations, the 1981 version where you can hear him humming while he's tapping the keys. Um, for me, it gets to an exquisite level of vibration and touch that triggers in me things, helps me push my heightened sense of associations. But then on the other end of the spectrum, Metallica, I think 1982, um, live in Moscow after the Cold War was over and the Berlin Wall was down, is one of the most powerful, raging, incredible sort of bursts of energy for me. Now, those are tied to childhood experiences too, which also enhance them. But at the end of the day, they provide two components, two core ingredients. One is that subtle, very elegant, very, very sharp, almost uh, imperceptible uh, component that invites you to the exquisite, the, the, the sublime areas of your association. And the other is the force, the rage, the sort of absolute pure energy and, and strength that is as important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll go from one to the other during the same period. And uh, it tends to last, it could be anywhere between 10 minutes and an hour and a half. And, and I end up exhausted. It's like, I probably do it every three weeks. By now, I also, in a way, kind of do it in little short bursts. Mm -hmm. 
But this is the equivalent to someone being on hallucinogenics or ketamine. It's like you're literally forcing your mind into almost tripping. You're forcing your mind to trip at an emotional state and you're blocking everything out, asking for that association to pop out. To stay in that note, do you, do you have any other unique habits that you do regularly that you would say lead to the clarity that you have? Sure. Um, just to finish within that, a key part of the component that I was leaving out is that I sketched down as quickly as possible every single idea that comes up to mind. Afterwards? Or during While in, during the process. So it's literally as cheesy as it might sound. It's like a medium in a movie that has their eyes almost closed and it's trying to connect with the spirits and is pulling out phrases and is saying, oh, your grandfather is talking about something. Is this true or not here? You're coming up with associations and you scribble them down as fast as possible because it is the equivalent of being in that half asleep state in which you're dreaming, right? And unless you immediately record the dream, you lose it. So I, I try to spit everything out. For me, the medium that is easiest is to draw. It also, that way I'm not speaking into something or I'm not having to type something down. It is somehow more connected, more guttural. Um, and I try not to, um, not to judge. I try to be forgiving with myself. Whatever's coming out comes out and I don't prejudge it no matter how dumb or silly it might appear. Um, I do that for as long as I can. And then I look at it. I look at it after, once, once it's there. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I heard a story of Albert Einstein, and he, during the day, he would take naps, and he would somehow attach a, a metal bowl or something to him. And I guess I, somehow, when, as soon as he was falling asleep, this metal bowl would fall. Maybe he was holding it, it would fall. And he would wake up in that sort of subconscious heart sleep mode that you like, think you're talking Interesting. about. Interesting. And he would then record his his mind. So I'm. Interesting. It's interesting you've come to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was I was listening to an interview. Two people were talking about Michael Jordan the other day. And they were describing him as the most competitive person they had ever met. A guy so competitive that would fight you to who ate their soup quicker or would fight you about a golf game, but then would also hold a grudge 15 years later and call out a journalist that had said something wrong about them a long time ago. And I think there is a requirement of, of, energy that is it's so key to this um it is not just about a pacific guru-like state you also need the acdc or the fierce rage to push because it is, you're trying to achieve levels of of intellectual exercise that are tiring that require being pushed and so I see it as someone who runs. If you run more than 10 minutes, you know that you get this sort of cramp hit on the side of, of 
your ribs, right? And, and you think you need to stop, but the only logical thing you're told is you're gonna continue running and that eventually goes away. There's a similar thing here where, whether it's by sheer urge to compete, whether it's by rage, whether it's by necessity, or by music, whatever it is you can bring in, this constant state of tranquility, this constant state of connection with the subconscious needs to be accompanied by a fierce uh, push to take your body and your mind beyond what is comfortable. Coming back to the question about habits, I, to rephrase it, is there one habit that you've done for a long time that you think has led to your led to your your success, for lack of a better word? Yeah, um, I, I think there's a couple that have been super helpful. Um, for about ten years, whenever I would take a shower, and for whatever reason I showered at night, I, makes no sense to me anymore. But I used to shower at night. Um, for 10 years, I would make myself into a ball, have the water fall on top of me, and I would visualize the entire day from the moment I woke up to that shower, step by step. And I would ask myself, was I brave today? Was there any moment during the day where I knew there was an option I should have taken and I didn't? Whether that was confronting a bully, whether that was taking a the harder decision work-wise, uh, whether that was, um, I don't know, inviting out that girl that I wanted to go out with. For 10 years, there wasn't a single day where I had chickened out. I no longer do that exercise. I don't think I need to do it anymore. I don't know that I chicken out anymore. Um, so that was from age uh, probably 15 to 25. And, and you mentioned visualizing, looking back at the day, yeah. you also visualize? The whole day, from the moment I got up, had breakfast, my interactions, conversations with people, the bus driver that didn't stop for the old lady, what did he do? Like the person in the cafeteria that pushed someone else, what did he do? Every single moment, I never cowered out. And it's interesting because it becomes, a, it becomes a beautiful habit that you don't want to break. Mm -hmm. After you've been doing this for a while and you've been, quote unquote, courageous within your standards for a while, breaking with that record sucks. So like, why would you ever do it? And then it just becomes a habit. And once again, I think... It is liberating and it's not so much about wanting to feel that you're brave. It is about wanting to be tranquil. That if a truck runs me down right after this interview, I've fucking died doing everything I could possibly have done. Like I, there was nothing, nothing I didn't do that I knew I should have done. And that is incredibly tranquilizing. That is maybe my most cherished value or, or asset. I, I think it would be for all of us. Right? So, so that is a huge thing that 
that for me is key. Um, there are many other habits and, and elements that I think are, are pretty important, but that one is the most important, I think. So imagine little Sebastian, 20 years old, sitting over here with the broader generation of people in 20-year-old Sebastian's age group. What advice would you give him? None. That's the whole point. The whole point of this whole thing, apart from change your surname, you have the stupidest fucking surname that we started with. Is that the way you pronounce it? I would have changed my surname a million times now. Apart from that, none. Because of that trust you had. In because I did everything at every moment that I should have done. Because I never chickened out. And it was always done, obviously, within the clarity. I made many, many mistakes. I have fucked up many times. But I didn't know I was fucking up. I didn't know better. Right? And, and I make mistakes like everyone else and I need to apologize for them. But also apologizing is the logical thing that you're supposed to do if that is the correct thing and the brave thing to do. You go and you apologize. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so enormous amounts of errors, but none that I could have avoided. And none that I believe I haven't tried to amend. So do you think if, if it's not little Sebastian, but it's someone else is, is the advice to be courageous and. Yeah, you have only one life now. This, it is not entirely your generation's fault or by your generation. I mean a whole range of generations, right? Um, it's not just this generation's fault that they feel so lost and that they're all trying to find their calling but can't you've just been given more opportunities than anyone else ever had before and that's scientifically proven to make whichever choice you do less satisfactory right so when my dad studied at the university there was probably 30 careers he could choose from when I studied, there might have been 80. When you studied, there was already 300. Yeah. Not only that, there was that many more types of jobs, that many more types of lives, and that much more data and information, that many more bands you could listen to, right? That many more sports teams that you knew existed. Mm -hmm. The quantity of choice that you have been offered has also turned up being your uh, prison because it seems so mortifying to have to pick one and say no to so many and it makes this choice so less satisfactory when the differences between what you chose and the many that you left behind are so evident mm -hmm. nevertheless you're all getting caught up in this inability to choose and your life is passing by in front of you and you're not making choices. And it's the equivalent to 
when you're trying to cross the street with a friend, with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, someone, and one of the two tries to run for it and the other one tries to stay back. And because you were holding hands or so on, you get pulled halfway. That is the one spot you'd never want to be in because mm -hmm. that's where you get run over. Mm -hmm. That's where this generation, I believe, is caught. You're in between caught and you're not making a call and your time is passing. And so that's where, again, we need to break it down. It doesn't matter if you were handed a more complex problem with more variables. At the end of the day, you still have the intelligence to be able to confront it, break it down, analyze it, and figure out this is it, right? So right now you're how old? 22. 22. If we were to think how influential are the next years going to be in whatever the rest of your life will be, we know it's pretty high. And even though we understand that we're in an era in which uh, people change from jobs to job at a higher rate than ever before, we could both pretty much state that from here to your 26, we're going to be defining what you're going to do more or less for the rest of your life. Right? Because... By 26, you're already kind of in that direction. 28 to 30, you just consolidate it. And then you're more or less in a direction, even if then you have a few sort of slight career changes. So if it's 26, it's basically what you do now within the next four years. The next four years to just know. The next four years are about to influence 50% of the rest of my life. That is huge, Absolutely. right? That is, that is enormous. And so if you think, should I be fucking partying the next four years or should I be getting my shit together so I can party the rest of my life? You should probably be getting your shit together, right? And within the next four years, you could pretty much bet that there's going to be just two or three things that are going to trigger the rest. It's not going to be 20 things, 30 things. There's going to be two or three important things that are going to trigger the rest of that 50% of your life. What are those two or three things going to be? What do you want them to be? Mm -hmm. Fuck. It's like that brings a ticking clock to the that starts breaking things down, right? And so then if you think, okay, if this year could be the equivalent of one of those three things... How do I do it? What do I want that thing to be? And yes, I know I wanted to go on a trip and I want to do this and I want to go out with my friends and do that. Okay, how do we incorporate within that program right now what is important? And what of these jobs or internships or things that you weren't really thinking much about, you were just continuing to do because you thought you had to do, should you continue to do? And which ones should you just start being more active about? And what if you were to put two, three times the amount of work that you were thinking on making one of these things happen now give you a 50% more chance of actually getting it. And you should fucking do that right now, right? So is that exercise that you can do at any moment in life that I think is absolute key? And that exercise will give you tranquility if you're being honest. If you go at that problem again and again from a multiplicity of angles, you check it out with other people, you try to make sure you're not being biased, you will end up with a result that more or less will be the same no matter how many times you go at it. 
That's your truth. That's your clarity. That's your passion. That's your mandate. And now you can choose to every day admit that you did or didn't do what was going to drive towards that truth. And you can choose to admit it to yourself. Were you courageous or not in following what you already know is the clear path you need to be following? I think you have a, a wisdom and an understanding that is beyond what a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. Where have you found your, your moment of um, effective and efficient learning? Have you, are you a diligent reader? Are you just curious? Are you, do you talk to as many people as you can? Do you, how, how have you learned and how do you learn? Um, I do read a lot. I do read a lot. I am very curious. And I was taught as a kid to always justify my opinions with arguments. It was one of the beautiful things I got from my dad that we always had to enunciate our arguments for anything. You wanted to go on vacation somewhere, you had to present a case for why you deserve to go on vacation somewhere. Um, if you had an opinion about a sculpture or you had an opinion about a political movement, you needed to be able to provide arguments as to why. That aspect is key because it basically means that you're actually thinking. You're not simply accepting the truths that society, your friends, your social environment tells you are the right solutions, but you're critically analyzing them from whichever uh, data you have, and you're trying to accept only that which makes sense. It's almost a, in, a, in a weird way, it's kind of, like when you see um, the flat earthers, mm -hmm. they're like, everyone makes fun of them and, and we do because obviously it's so dumb. Nevertheless, these are actually smarter than many because they admit to their own problems with a theory that is presented to them and they rebel to just accept something that doesn't make sense to them and they go out and try to within their own very flawed uncultured um, scientific process try to prove what they believe should be right it is that exercise that i think is beautiful and necessary in all of us now, if more flat earthers or 9-11 conspiracy deniers, right, um, sorry, uh, uh, supporters could also accompany that spirit of uh, personal research and a questioning of a reality with a proper education, then that makes you the best possible uh, scenario to be able to go through life uh, with a relatively open yet critical understanding of life and to be able to feel tranquil that the decisions you're making are your own and that there are many things that you agree with and those you don't and you know why you don't agree with those 
and they once again liberate you to live life through what you believe. They give you the tranquility and the clarity and the passion to defend those things you're defending. And as long as, just like any scientist, you will embrace the truth if proven wrong, uh, you're, you're good, you're free, it's beautiful. And so it's, that, that, that part is, is just key, it, it is vital. Whether you're a designer figuring out how to redesign a spoon, right? Or whether you're, I don't know, a, a priest dealing with problems of faith, right? You have to be honest with yourself, you have to question, and then you make your decisions. And the more you question, the more you see. The more you know, the more you identify. It's a virtuous cycle. I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but do you have time for a few Let's more go questions? on. Two more. Two more. Two more. One two more. is, what is the book that has most influenced your life? Um, it's called The Boy by Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl is the author of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, and all these childhood books. Boy is one of two books that he wrote about his own childhood. And it's a funny book that narrates how he survived uh, a, a very tough school in like a pre-war era. Um, but beyond its entertainment, for me, when I read it, I was a kid, but I understood that this was what life was about. It was about living it in such a manner that you one day could write a book about it. And that's why I understood at that moment that that's what school was about. School was about that life and that in an awareness of, I would live my life as if I was going to write a book about it. I would live that life as if I wanted to be the hero of my life with how it should be. Um, and that was a very clarifying book. I don't know if it provides the same reading for everyone, but that's, that's what I read at the time. Last question is, who do you recommend that I get on the podcast next? that is the most passionate person you know or know of? Most passionate person I know or know of. Um, it's a hard one. Um, You know what, I'd, I'd get a priest, I'd get a rabbi, I'd get a uh, fundamentalist, I'd get someone who, despite the clear clarity of what is evidently truth, chooses not to see that truth chooses to look another way. For me, that requires as much passion as to living by seeing truth, to living by denying it. It's like, I do not fucking understand those people. 
And they clearly have passion. I mean, from blowing themselves up to deciding that they will not have sex with anyone in their lives. It is definitely passionate people. I don't know for the right reasons. I don't think that for the right reasons, it would be interesting to be able to question them and try to get them to answer without, without um, paralyzing uh, rational thought, without going just to faith, to get them to try and explain faith. I would give a good counterbalance. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Much luck with everything. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bub on Purpose podcast. If you would like to get show notes from the learnings that I hope you gathered during this conversation, you can email bubonpurpose at gmail.com and you will get a response with all of the show notes. Make sure to title the subject of your email something like show notes or your grandma's cookie recipe, your friend's dog's middle name, or really anything. I'll get back to you. Also, I would love if you would send me your suggestions of what you did or didn't like, or who you think I should interview next on the podcast. And again, please send that to bubonpurpose at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I wanted to follow up on that story about Albert Einstein. So here's what I found out from the Herald Sun. He would sit in his favorite armchair during the day with a pencil or a spoon in his hand and purposely doze off. The aim was to wake before hitting stage two of sleep to the sound of the clang after that object dropped from his hand. Waking up in this first stage of sleep is said to loosen the ego and engage with the part of our brain that creates vivid imagery and sensation. So when I'm trying to make sense of that, I think it must have been an attempt to make use of or remember this dreamlike state. And if you want to look more into this this thing that is called hypnagogic napping, that's the term for it. And some other famous people who claimed to do it as well were Salvador Dali, Aristotle, and Thomas Edison. I don't know. I might hop. I might give it a try. To learn more about Sebastian or have a look at his work, check out his website, meetsebastian.com or on Instagram at Sebastian Studio. If you could subscribe and share, that would be awesome. Uh, if you don't want to, let me know why and maybe we can make the podcast better. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, go follow us at Bub on Purpose on Instagram. Uh, I don't know what I just said, us. It's just me.